Hey, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John? Gospel of John, and uh, if you would just turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8. Uh, we're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 53, the very last verse of chapter 7, and then we'll read the first part of chapter 8 to verse 11 this morning. So let me read this to us. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin, be, uh, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. So, today, we encounter a very interesting situation that we only run into a couple of times in the Gospels, and the situation is that we find an incredibly famous moment in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we also encounter some of the most repeated words that Jesus seemingly ever said, often paraphrased as something like, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And yet, there is one tiny little problem with this story. It possibly never happened. The Bible is about the most verified ancient document in existence today. If you've ever wondered, how do we know that the Bible we have today is the same thing that it's always been for the last 2,000 years? Well, the truth is both Christian and non-Christian scholars have more confidence in the text of the Bible than probably any other ancient document. And the reason why is because the Bible is easily the most copied work in human history. And I, I would go out on them and say, it's probably also the most quoted work in human history. We have more confidence in the authenticity of the text, that it is what it has always been. We have more confidence in the authenticity of the text of Scripture than we do even in ancient works like the Odyssey or the Iliad or the writings of Plato or Aristotle. The study of the actual text of Scripture and its authenticity falls into a whole field of scholarship that's known as textual criticism. Scholar Bruce Metzger tells us that the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of material. 
besides textual evidence derived from the New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions of the New Testament, the textual critic, he says, has available the numerous scriptural quotations included in the commentaries, sermons, and other treatises written by early church fathers. In other words, what he's saying is, there is more like supporting evidence for the text of the Bible than anything else out there. And it's not just that there are actual copies of the biblical text, actual manuscripts of the Bible. What he's also saying is there are so many places where in extra biblical sources, the writings of the church fathers, the sermons of the church fathers, the letters of the church fathers, there are so many places where the scripture is quoted that there's just an abundance of resources that are out there. In fact, he goes on and says, indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So what he's saying is, even if all of the copies of the biblical text that we have, all the manuscripts of the Bible, even if all of those were destroyed, the New Testament is quoted so abundantly in the writings, the ancient writings of the church fathers, that we could probably reconstruct the whole New Testament just from their writing alone, which is astounding. It's amazing. And yet... You heard me right a minute ago. This story of the woman caught in adultery was probably a later addition to John's gospel that he did not write. Do what? Isn't the Bible the word of God? Well, yeah, it is. Uh, didn't you just say that the Bible is the most like authenticated text in human history? That is what I said. Um, isn't the scripture like supposed to be inerrant and infallible? Yeah, I believe it is. So what's going on here? You may notice in your Bible, you may have noticed on the screen as well, if you're reading something like an ESV or an NIV or a New American Standard Bible, that this text in John's gospel is set apart from everything else in brackets. Um, some versions like the ESV even include a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And, and so what's going on here is that within that embarrassment of a wealth of ancient materials that Bruce Metzger described are thousands of copies of the New Testament and thousands of copies of John's gospel. Some are full texts. Some are fragments of texts. Some are extremely old. Some are not quite as old. Some are in the original Greek language. Some are in languages like Latin or Arminian. And, and this story is prevalent in those ancient copies, but it is virtually nowhere to be found in the oldest copies of John's gospel that are out there. Also, remember the text of Scripture is highly quoted. What's also really interesting is in all the writing of the church fathers, remember we could possibly reconstruct the New Testament from their quotations alone. In the writings of the church fathers, this story is actually nowhere to be found, which is significant. So this leads most scholars to conclude it was probably added at some point. But it's prevalent enough in the manuscripts 
that they don't want to just discard it. It's also possible that this was actually something that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus and was handed down by oral tradition and then eventually added to the New Testament at some point. We just don't know. So many translations of the Bible include it, but they include it with an asterisk, or they set it apart in brackets, or they set it apart with a note. Um, that's not a modern English thing to do either. There are actually ancient copies of this that set this little piece of text apart. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, scholars have wanted to point out that we're not so sure about this particular story, which honestly gives me even more confidence in the text of Scripture. Like, we know exactly the places where there might be a little bit of a question mark, and no one's trying to hide that from anybody. Scholars are more than open and honest, and you see that right in the pages of your own Bible. And to be honest, I debated talking about this at all this morning. It's not normally what we do. Our primary purpose in preaching on Sunday mornings is to declare the gospel. That's why I'm up here, guys. It's not to give a lecture on Bible history or textual criticism or anything like that, even though those are important things. No matter what part of the Bible we're looking at, our ultimate goal is to connect it to the truth of Christ and to the story of Jesus and to remind our hearts of what is true, of what he has done. It is the greatest news that we could ever hear, and we need to hear it daily, if not minute by minute, to be honest with you. But... Part of my role as a pastor is the work of training and equipping you guys, the body for the work of ministry. And understanding how to engage with the Word of God is a critical thing. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage today, but we're going to look at it with an important critical question in mind. And the question is this, where is the gospel here? Where is the gospel? Historically, preachers by and large have handled this text in one of two ways. They either teach it as if it was something that actually happened and is meant to be there in the text, or they skip it entirely. And to be honest with you, I think there are some good reasons for both of those approaches. Um, those who go on and teach it will note that we don't know for absolute certain that this didn't happen. Um, that's because we don't have any of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. You know, we don't have the, the papyrus that John's gospel was originally written on. We have copies, and many of those copies, as I said, are very old and very close to the time when this would have been written. Um, so, so some people point that out, but also there's nothing about this story that's like out of line or counter to the character of Christ that we see throughout the gospels. In other words, it sounds like something Jesus would do and say, doesn't it? Those who choose not to teach it will cite, though, that even though we perhaps don't know for absolute certain that this story is apocryphal, all of the best scholarship from our age and from church history suggests that it was not a part of John's original text. And if you're reading John 7 and 8 together, which you should be, by the way, right? if you're reading these two chapters together, this story does read kind of as if it's just kind of been plopped down in the middle of this, as if it's been inserted into the middle of it. You remember last week in chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. In Jerusalem, And he stands up in the midst of the crowd and cries out, come to me, those of you who thirst and you can drink and be filled. And then there's this exchange between the Pharisees where they're arguing about Jesus. And then all of a sudden we're here in this account. But when you look at verse 12 of chapter 8, 
It, appear, it appears as if Jesus is still at the feast, as if Jesus is still addressing the crowds, and he then famously says, I am the light of the world, which sounds like he's just continuing his discourse, and he's moving from the metaphor of water and those who thirst that we saw back in chapter 7, and he's now moving into this metaphor of light, both of which are big themes within the Feast of Booths. But if that's all the case, why, why am I choosing to talk about this today? Well, I'm talking about this because I want us to see something that I think is critically important, and it's this. The gospel is all around us. The gospel is all around us. We talk all the time about growing our awareness of God's presence, right? God is omnipresent. Um, God, God is everywhere. Um, God is not only in spaces and situations that we would deem to be spiritual or sacred. Like, God is also, believe it or not, present in the, ooh, the secular world, right? God created everything. Like, God is present and active and moving, not just in the church, guys, but in our world, in the whole of our world. And so often what we're doing in our lives is, is not just looking to the truth of Scripture, which is critical, but we're also looking for how God is at work in the world around us. And we're asking questions like, where is God at work around me and how do I join him in his work? Right? How do I be obedient to the truth of Scripture and come alongside the work of God in the world around me? And, and I think a lot of that comes from viewing the world through what I would call a gospel grid or a gospel lens that based on what Christ has done for us, based on this new life that we've been called into, based on the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we're not just saying, I get to go to heaven when I die. We're saying, man, God has work for me right now. He has people that he's put in my path. He has neighbors that he has brought to move right next door to me. He's got people that work in the cubicle next to me. He's got teachers in the classroom next to me. He's got students that are over here that I interact with. God has put people in my path. Now, how do I be obedient to him to take the gospel, not only by declaring it, but also by demonstrating it to the people that I interact with on a daily basis? But if you don't have a gospel grid for looking at the world, you're not going to see that kind of stuff. And, and also, you're not going to see him pop up in all these other Places. My daughter, Emmy, has been reading the Harry Potter books. And it always makes me laugh to think about, like, the Christian Harry Potter controversy from, like, 15, 20 years ago that, that people were up in arms about witchcraft and sorcery. And, and, I, and apparently that's fine when it's in a book by C.S. Lewis or <laughs> Tolkien or somebody like that. That's not a problem. But, ooh, Harry Potter. But, but listen, when you read those books... Man, Harry is a Christ figure. He, he's not Christ, but he is a Christ figure. Like, he literally sacrifices himself for his friends. He's literally resurrected at one point. And like, like, so when you have a gospel grid, you begin to see shadows, like foretaste, parts and pieces of the kingdom of God popping up in the world all around us and oftentimes in places where we would least expect those things to pop up. Guys, God is at work. And so what I want to do today as we look at this passage is I want to try to apply this gospel grid to it. 
And I think one of the reasons why Christians continue to pass on this story about Jesus is because when you look at it with a gospel grid, man, the good news is on full display. And so I want us to consider four ways we see the gospel in this account today. And I'll mention them briefly and then we'll walk through them. First, Jesus intercedes on behalf of a person who is guilty. Jesus intercedes on behalf of a person who is guilty. Second, the word of Christ silences the accusers. The word of Christ silences the accusers. Third, Jesus removes her condemnation. He removes her condemnation. And then fourth, Christ's forgiveness leads to new life. His forgiveness leads to new life. So let's start with our first point here. Jesus intercedes on behalf of a person who is guilty. Notice the text doesn't imply that this woman has been wrongfully accused. Verse 3 says she has been caught in the act of adultery. And you might be inclined to wonder, where's the guy, right? Why is it just her? Where's the guy in this scenario? You know, the scribes and the Pharisees don't seem concerned really about him. And, and I would say they don't really seem concerned about her being stoned for real. Like they don't really seem to be concerned that uh, justice in their eyes is being carried out. Um, now, it is true what they say. There are provisions in the law of Moses, particularly for a woman who has been caught in adultery, as well as a man who's been caught in adultery. But, but if a woman was betrothed to another man, like she was engaged to be married, as it were, and she is caught in an adulterous act, the law of Moses does uh, command stoning in that particular situation. However, the historical evidence seems to suggest that that was not at all a common event in Jesus's day. That you have these guys, the Pharisees and the ultra-religious scribes and priests who are seemingly very concerned about the law of Moses and yet this is not something that seems to be going on with any regularity in Jesus's world. And that actually falls into Jesus's argument from last week back in chapter seven. You may remember he said to the crowds, you guys don't even follow the law of Moses, but you're upset with me because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. Like you're upset with me for working on the Sabbath, but you don't keep the law of Moses. Right? And so here's that sort of irony on display in front of us. They're not actually concerned that justice is carried out. They're really trying to entrap Jesus. Notice as they push this guilty woman in front of him, he becomes her advocate. He becomes her advocate. You could even say Jesus is her mediator. That's the language Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2. He says, for there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Next, the word of Christ silences the accusers. Jesus, his question to the crowd not only shuts them up, it causes them to disperse. It causes them to walk away. Notice, and this is one of my favorite things that it says. Notice that it says the older ones walked away first. Right. Seemingly, the ones who hopefully have a little bit more wisdom than the like arrogant young bucks, they're the ones who go uh, touche and (laughs) and take off. Right. They know they're not going to win this argument. Let me ask you this. Who are your accusers? 
The book of Revelation gives that title actually to Satan, the accuser. John, who also writes that book, says, he is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, what's interesting in this story in John is that the accusers aren't necessarily wrong. The problem isn't that they are lying about the woman's guilt. The problem is that they are also guilty. Maybe not of adultery, but who doesn't have sin here? Let him throw the first stone. That's what Jesus' question illuminates. It's not as if we've got this sinner in the midst of a circle of perfect people. No, there's only one in that circle who's actually perfect. And it's not any of the guys who are accusing this woman. The biblical picture is that this is what Christ is doing on our behalf, guys, through his death and resurrection. He is stepping into this role before the Father as our advocate, as our mediator, that he is silencing the mouth of our accuser. Next, Jesus removes her condemnation. After vanquishing her accusers, Jesus also releases her from his own rebuke. And this is a beautiful picture of something that I think is difficult for us to grasp. I think most of us can accept the idea that we've all done things that we shouldn't have done. I think, I think we get that. You don't have to be a Christian to think that, by the way, right? I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've, had, I've done things that I regret. I've done, things, I've done things I wish I hadn't done. But I think it's difficult for us to truly see the full breadth of our sin, to feel like the full weight of our sin, like the immersiveness or pervasiveness of our sin. And that our depravity or our fallenness, you could say, is, as the reformers said, it's total, it's, it's complete. However, most of us have never been in a situation like this woman where our sin is on full display in front of the public, as it were, and, and where my life might literally be over because of the things I've done. In other words, we can accept that, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not, I know I've done some bad things. I know I'm not like God all the way and, and I mess up sometimes. But do we fully appreciate the fact that God would be fully justified in just wiping us off the map? Like, do you recognize and appreciate that outside of Christ, we are all in this woman's position of being guilty and, and seconds away from being stoned? Here's how the 18th century Puritan Jonathan Edwards put it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. 
And he's trying to be shocking with his language so that his hearers will wake up and, and recognize that every breath you take is a gift of God's grace because were it not for Christ, you and I would be fully deserving of the arrow of God's wrath plunged into our hearts. Fourth, Christ's forgiveness leads to new life. Jesus' forgiveness, did you notice, came with a command. Him saying, neither do I condemn you but it comes with a charge to repentance. Go and sin no more. But here's what we miss. Jesus isn't just giving her a command. He's giving her a gift. It's not just giving her a command. He's giving her a gift. It's not a you ought to. It's a you get to. However, I think that the way we respond to God's grace is directly related to our sense of undeservedness. The more you can appreciate your own wretchedness, to use an older word, the more you will be bowled over by the grace of Christ. The more you can appreciate the pervasiveness of your own sin, the, the, the reality of your true situation outside of Christ, the more you will be overcome with the grace that is offered to you through Jesus. If, if you don't think you're all that bad of a person in the sight of God, then you might be inclined to think that you somehow deserve what Jesus is offering to you. But warning, that is an extremely precarious position to be in. In other words, the way that you hold and respond to the favor of Christ says a lot about your actual state of being. Imagine that you are the woman on the ground before him. Angry men have accused you. You are guilty. The law does say that you should be stoned. Stones are raised against your head. And then a simple word, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And that's it. It's over. It's done. They're walking away. And then another word, neither do I condemn you. It takes us back, if you've been following in John, it takes us back to chapter 3, where you get the most famous verse, right, in America, John 3, 16, but then you get that next one, John 3, 17. What does Jesus say? I haven't come into the world to condemn the world. But what? So that the world might be saved. Neither do I condemn you. Listen, there is only one normal way to respond if you are the woman in that position. It is to view the one who has interceded for you as having saved your life. Now you get to continue living. It's a gift. But you continue living with the recognition that you owe your life to the one who interceded for you, right? 
I think it's clear why this text is in here, why Christians throughout the centuries perpetuated it, even though there were some questions about it. It is a beautiful story, and in many ways, it is the story of what Jesus has done for you and me as well. The real question today is, how are you responding to Jesus' intercession on your behalf? How are you responding to the fact that Christ has stopped the stones that were aimed at your head, the, the arrow that was aimed at your heart, which, by the way, he isn't your savior if you don't think he saved you from anything. So how do we respond to his grace, his mediation on our behalf? Surprise, surprise, Paul gives us some clear insight here. This is Colossians 3. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Right? If this has happened in your life, what do you do? Like, I turn away from seeking the things that are around me in this world, and I'm going to seek the things that are of God's kingdom. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, where the one who saved you is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. What? What? He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you notice the paradox in those words? If you have been saved by Christ, if your life has been saved by Christ, he says your salvation brings with it a death. It's a death to self. So that you might become more like the one who has saved you. But don't let that scare you because it's a death to the thing that puts you in the position of being guilty before him in the first place. As Paul said in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul has been crucified alongside him, and he means that metaphorically, but there's also kind of a literal sense in which he means it. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's not just something he was claiming for himself. It's something that he was putting out there as an example to follow. As, as like what we're going for as followers of Jesus. Friends, let us recognize today the incredible grace of God in Christ. But let us also recognize that he has not freed us from death so that we can just continue life as it was before. And if that is your M.O., man, wake up this morning. Wake up. Wake up to what he has done, how incredible, how beautiful it is, how it is nothing you could have ever done for yourself. He has freed us not to sin, but from sin. From the hold it has had on us. And so let me leave you with this thought today. There is one key way that this story actually maybe differs from a full perspective on the gospel, and, and, and it's this. Jesus doesn't just run off our accusers and forgive us of our guilt. That's not the whole story. He actually bears our guilt, and he takes on the punishment that we were due. Right? He doesn't just run them away and go, no one's getting stoned today. He takes on the stones on our behalf. 
It's one thing to say that he stopped a criminal from shooting me. It's another thing to say he took the bullet that I deserved. And yet that is exactly what he's done, church. To go back to Jonathan Edwards' metaphor of the arrow being aimed at your heart, Jesus doesn't just remove the arrow. He grabs it and he turns it to his own heart and he releases it. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I live. Let us pray. Father, what a joy to encounter your word this morning. And Father, even though we might have some questions about this particular text, we have no questions about your gospel and the way we see it on display not only here, but throughout your word and also on display in the world around us. Pray, Father, that we would be a people who not only believe this intellectually, but we believe this in an experiential way as well, that we see ourselves as people who once had an arrow aimed at our heart. And that that was not something you put there, God. That was something we put there ourselves through our own actions. And yet you have not simply removed it, but through Christ you have taken it on. That he suffered for me. He took on the wrath that was due me. So that it might be removed from me. and So that I might be reconciled to you. And it is through his death, his resurrection his body, his blood, that we are saved. God, help us today to not just espouse that, but to live that, to live as people who have been freed from death and who have been set free to love others in the way that you have loved us, God. in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning?